0: Every time that door closed, I just knew, okay, well, you know, you're gonna have to pay for this Barbie, like, and I had, um, I had like hundreds of Barbies from her.
1: I'm Papillon Bour. My pronouns are they, them. I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor specializing in sexual trauma, And this is Am I Broken? Survivor Stories. Unwanted or abusive sexual experiences can damage or destroy our trust in others. But what if the perpetrator was supposed to help you, not harm you? What if the offender was a doctor, a therapist, a yoga teacher, or a firefighter? This season of Am I Broken? features stories of those who have encountered a sexualized violation by someone in a helping profession, which is called Betrayal Trauma. We are about to hear from a survivor. Their story may include profanity and raw descriptions of abuse. Please take care of yourself and pause as needed, especially if you become overwhelmed, numb, or confused. If you find yourself in crisis or need further support in the U.S., you can call the National Sexual Violence Hotline at 800-656-4673 or message them at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. Today we're here with Hannah, whose pronouns are she, her. Hannah, thanks a lot for your courage today. Thank you. So what's inspiring you to share your story?
0: So I was thinking a lot about that question, and I think really what brings me here is just the hope that as I share, that folks who listen will not feel so alone. And also, just to kind of take some power back and really reclaim some of my story. So, yeah, that's that's really my purpose today.
1: So, when did you first realize that what happened to you was a sexualized violation?
0: So, um, I grew up in a very conservative, very religious small Southern town. And so when the abuse was going on, I didn't really know what was happening because we, we didn't, you know, have any kind of sex education to speak of. So I was getting a lot of like mixed messages about basically that, you know, these are things that are very secret and very hidden. And I definitely knew that you know, as a kid, for sure. But then um, also knew that there was a lot of just shame in this culture, even around talking about that word, and a lot of shame, whenever. um, Yeah, whenever the conversation would come up. So it wasn't until I was quite a lot older that I first talked about it. And kind of in just becoming an adult and reading more and, you know, being exposed to more of the world, I recognized that, that what had happened to me was, you know, definitely not okay. And um, I also, to an extent, thought it was just, just normal, you know, like, it was often framed as like, affection. And that was the word that was used. And so, So yeah, I left home when I was 17 to go to a school, kind of almost like an an early college. I lied and told them that I was 18. (laughs) And everyone thought that I was like 30 anyway. So I was like, well, I'm just going to use this to my advantage. And when I went to that school, that was the first time that I ever told someone. And it was difficult because their reaction was quite negative. Um, So this was kind of a, I guess, youth mentor, older, you know, girl. And she was very much like invalidating and just questioning and kind of very flippant about everything. And and so I felt a lot of shame really in in what I had shared, which, looking back now is so strange, just because i I was trying to almost be as like surface level about it as possible, just because i it was such a difficult thing to say. Yeah, so anyway, after that, I just really thought I was like well i'm I'm never doing that again because that was such a negative experience.
1: Was this also at a Christian college? Was there still that culture of secrecy and shame around it?
0: Yeah, this was. It was definitely kind of a step back into that same culture. And it was a really difficult thing as well because throughout my childhood, I had gone to my mom and my dad and you know, one other adult person and tried to explain, you know, in words that I didn't have really what was going on. And all of those instances were very much shut down and very much shamed. And um, just kind of, again, they were either chalked up to, oh, well, you know, they were just being affectionate. That's just affection. Or it was just complete denial The first time that I ever tried to tell my mom about what was going on, she said, well, you know, if that's, if that's happening to you, then I'm going to walk into that road over there and let a car run over me. And I just thought, I mean, I was terrified, you know, Yeah. I thought, yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, I, I I don't want you to die. I mean, what do you mean? It was just such a confusing moment, you know? So I learned very quickly that there was just really no place. There was no place to speak this. There was no place to tell this truth, you know? My dad also, he kind of, I, th- I think really they both sort of noticed when I was a child that something was up you know, if you know what I mean, like something was wrong. And so he would repeatedly ask me if something was going on. And then when I would sort of try to again explain, um, or sometimes I would just say, no, you know, I'm fine, everything's fine, which I think only added to the confusion. He would also say things like, well, you know, I'm glad everything's okay, because I would kill somebody if they were doing that, you know, to you. And it's like, well, then that means you're going to like, go to jail. I mean, you know, as a child, I was just kind of terrified that my parents were going to do something really kind of demonstrative. And then the whole world's going to crash down around me. You know, it makes me sad to think about now, because I think what was going on is just very sophisticated denial. But I was so just deeply confused and very lost and just very, very much, um, I guess, very much felt alone. So, so yeah, I, um, I didn't really share my whole story till I was much, much older and just in recent years, in fact, have kind of been able to do that just because I, you know, I would avoid therapy and, and it's, you know, it's one of those things where I had all these issues that I was dealing with and they were, you know, evident of like mental health struggles, but I, I too was in a lot of denial and just thought I was just kind of a fuck up if I'm being honest, you know? And so it's been really helpful to, I guess, maybe be able to frame this in a way where I can actually be proactive in my healing instead of just kind of being overwhelmed with just the immense shame. Like there's just, you know, there's just so much of that in my life. And so I am um, I found a lot of um, a lot of hope in being able to just name it and really, you know, kind of call it what it was, and that's been helpful for me.
1: Yeah, having carried it by yourself for so long, trying to tell your parents and other people and this mentor at college along the way and being rebuffed, invalidated, shamed, what was it like to finally... Share and be received and believed
0: i mean um it was very it was strange to be honest um at first, especially, but it was a very peaceful thing, like a very relieving thing i yeah, I kind of didn't know what to do with it at first um but it was really peaceful. That's the word that really comes to mind.
1: How and when was this?
0: So, I mean, I, um, when I was first talking about the abuse and kind of talking about the ages of that. So a lot of it went on when I was quite young and then there were different sort of sporadic things as a young adult, but, um, I was 5 when things, you know, started and it was very helpful and peaceful to just be able to feel validated and just kind of heard in talking about that because I feel like in a way we do um, you know, carry these, you know, these kind of younger parts of ourselves around And I think that, um, they deserve to be heard and seen.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Was this also at the college where you disclosed and were believed for the first time?
0: Yeah, this was at college. It was a, a friend that I had made. So not, not a mentor or anything like that. And she actually what happened is that um i was going for a walk and i was crying and i didn't realize there was anyone else on this you know kind of weird little street near the college and um she walked past me and then she turned around and said she was like are you okay and i was like yeah yeah i'm fine you know and she was like you're not you're, no you're not like you're openly crying you know what's going on and then i after she kind of pressed me a bit, I ended up, you know, kind of telling her and, and it was, it was very sweet. Like she just, she didn't even, it was like, she asked no more details or anything. She just said like, what's your favorite, like candy. And the next day she had put it in my school, like little mailbox cuppy, just as a gesture of kindness. And so that was really That was sweet and very healing, but more so what I'm talking about is just being in therapy and, um, really being able to openly talk about the details of things because I find that quite difficult. Um, it's not, you know, somewhere I like to go in my mind, but it's been very, very healing and peaceful, um, because there is a lot of merit and just being able to tell the truth for the first time, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Would you like to share the story of what happened today?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I say that and then instantly I'm like, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and
1: that, you know, that would be okay too. No. It really would. It really would.
0: No, that's okay. Um. So I again, like I said, grew up in a really kind of small conservative town. Um, and we had neighbors who lived right next to us who were an older couple, um, a husband and a wife, and they were friends with my parents and would often, you know, babysit me. Um, I'm the oldest. And so at this time, like my sibling wasn't born. And so it was kind of just me and, um, their house was this like beautiful, just palatial, you know, immaculate home. And the wife would, so every time I would go over to their house, which was pretty much like, I don't know, at least like three times a week, she would babysit me. And every single time she would give me a Barbie or give me some kind of like doll or toy. And at first it was just like, Oh this is really nice. You know, she's just so nice. She's so sweet, you know. And then um just things sort of got weird. You know, they got kind of weird and at this time like I said I was quite young and so you know, a 5-year-old, 6-year-old can't really understand what's going on. But I recognize now looking back that especially when i got older like had experienced it for a while and it was more like you know 8 and 9 like every time that door closed i just knew okay well you know you're going to have to pay for this barbie like and i had um i had like hundreds of barbies from her so i don't so yeah that was kind of the the sort of like initial stuff that happened. And uh, around this kind of same time, there was a a member of my family who um, was also abusing me. I don't know if this is true, but I, when I was a kid, I felt like he could almost see it on me. Like, I felt like I almost had it written on me if that makes sense like I don't know you know I don't know if if that actually is true or not but I do think that sometimes there's there's sometimes a sense of people's vulnerability and that's really what I felt back then um is that for some reason he could just see that I was vulnerable in that way and so he began abusing me as well. I think that so they're different obviously different experiences of this, but his abuse was more um more controlling, I guess is what I'll say, like I think that he like enjoyed like fear if I'm being quite frank. And so that was very much a part of the abuse and it kind of like i guess the worst thing or like it, it culminated or concluded in um him like inserting like an object into my body and you know i i remember thinking like cuz it was quite painful obviously and i remember thinking like why didn't you just kill me? You know, like if you were gonna, if you were gonna do that, like, why not just take this and like hit me over the head with it and just like finish this, you know? And, um, there was, you know, just kind of a lot of just after that, just a lot of really difficult moments and, it's almost like that was the watershed moment that made the abuse a lot just rougher, you know? And, you know, I, I don't go there often in my mind, but I, when I was around 10, we moved out of the neighborhood that we were in. And so I didn't see my neighbors anymore. And I, I, got too old. That's, um, kind of like what I think happened, honestly. And so with the family member, it was really difficult because as an older person, uh, he lived with us and, um, really struggled with his um, mental health just from various things within old age. And, So he didn't remember really anything that had happened, but it was one of the, certainly one of the most dark periods of my life, just because I was having to essentially take care of him, you know, in a very like, very kind of straightforward way. And yet I was terrified of him, you know?
1: What was it like for you For the abuse to suddenly stop, was that confusing? Was there some element of relief? Was being around him still like it could resume at any moment?
0: It was so confusing. I mean, it certainly was a relief in many ways, but I was still just petrified that it could somehow start or, I mean, Really, what I was just terrified of was anyone finding out my secret, you know, like because I knew as a child that I could destroy my family, you know, like I was like, if anybody finds out about this, then this is going to like destroy like everything, you know. And I will say, like, you know, this is a difficult thing to say, but in some ways, it was also like, upsetting to me when it stopped because I, I felt like it was a strange thing because although, like, much of it was painful, like, there were elements of affection and elements of, like, warmth and, like, I mean, seduction within what I experienced. And so when that stopped, it's like I felt this just emptiness like just this like worthlessness you know because I I just remember thinking like I don't know what to do with myself now like it was just a horrible feeling of being like unwanted you know and like I said I it's not lost on me like how that sounds and it's a difficult thing to say but That was also a part of it for me too.
1: Yeah. You know, as you know, it's so confusing and it's so normal, Mm -hmm. you know, for us to like want that attention and the affection that was part of it and to feel that sense of loss.
0: Yeah. I was just very lost. I was very lost in it. And I was very much wrapped up in the idea that God was going to kill me or that God hated me. When I was 10, this was before I knew that we were moving, after I had seen my grandpa and things had happened, I wrote on my wall, I am worthless, I am a waste. And I covered it up with a poster. And I just feel like for me, at least, like that has been something that I've, I mean, I might as well have written it on my heart because it's something I've carried, you know, for pretty much my whole life. And it's been something I've tried to and have been trying to rewrite kind of forever you know but that's a pretty i guess succinct like encapsulation of of like what i felt you know
1: yeah it's very stark very clear. yeah given the elements of small town neighbor family member christianity what roles did your grandpa and the neighbor play, not just as abusers, but in the community?
0: Um. So my grandpa was a deeply religious man and very well thought of in the community, like very much, um, you know, held up in the community as this, you know, Pentecostal, like, figure, you know? And my neighbors, like both the husband and the wife were very, um, again, very Christian, very like prominent, everyone knew everybody. But there was certainly this theme in my life of, you know, these men of God, really being very much like, I guess, very, pedantic and strict and you know moralistic in their public life but then very very different in their private life and there was a a time actually which to me speaks a lot of his own denial but when i was with my grandpa you know and the the line was like well you know we're going to go to like a yard sale you know And, um, you know, something happened in the car and I, I remember him looking at me and he just said like, you know, honey, you know, this isn't me, right? This is like the devil. And it's like, well, I mean, you know, as a kid, I, I didn't really know what to think. I just thought, okay, well, I mean, that doesn't stop me from feeling like just a total, you know, just hollow and just a total object, basically. But I I also grew up within the purity culture of the 90s as well. So for those that don't know what that is, it basically, it was this movement in the evangelical Christian community where you're purity or your goodness as a person was tied to your sexuality and so I grew up with those messages of you know if you don't have your virginity then that means that you are somehow broken or you're somehow less than and when I was older so this is around middle school I had a youth group leader who was himself very creepy and one of the parables or like, I guess, object lessons that he was teaching us in youth group was he would fill up like a glass of water and pass it around and, you know, say like, you can take a drink of that water and like, you can take a drink of that water. And then he put dirt in the water and would pass it around to all of us and say, you know, well, now would you drink that water? Like, Why not? Like, you know, it was this, you know, kind of this idea basically that, you know, if you're a woman and you have sex before you're married, then you're a dirty glass of water essentially. And another lesson was like chewing up gum and then passing it around and asking people to chew it, which of course no one would. And it's like, yeah, see, like you're chewed up gum if you do this, you know. So, I mean, it was just complete shame, really, within that culture. And of course, you know, with me having experienced what I had already, I just was completely distraught, you know, inside. I just thought, well, I'm a dirty glass of water and I'm chewed up gum and I'm just worthless, I guess, you know, because I don't have this thing that everyone says I must have to be good
1: I'm so mad for you right now
0: thank you I appreciate that I mean it is you know I think it's worth being angry over like it's it's a terrible feeling it's a terrible thing and I think it hurt a lot of people you know I feel like it really in many ways was for a lot of young women and young men, its own form of trauma, not to mention like, you know, the gay community was not even considered within my culture. And so I would have friends who would come out to their families and then, you know, just be completely shunned by the entire community. And I mean, it's very, it's a horrible thing because when I think of God, I don't think of hatred or anger or dirty glasses of water, but it's the responsibility of the leaders and the adults within these communities to be able to recognize the harm in lessons like that and in movements like that. Um, and I mean I know for for me like those messages are you know are things that I I still even to this day I have to really you know be conscientious about not internalizing those because the other thing that happens in that culture is that if you do report any kind of abuse, you're immediately shamed and so one time I because I knew this, I tried to do something in secret. So I was 15 and I was at a, um, and I was at a birthday party for a friend and we were playing this game where each of us had like a journal and we were going to pass the journal around basically and like write in it um, a part of the story. And then the game was, they were going to read the story and it was going to be a funny game of like telephone almost and i didn't realize that they were going to read the story aloud at all and honestly i don't think i was thinking clearly just in in really any way because i wrote about a rape essentially and it was very graphic and very intense and it was something that i had experienced you know kind of many years before that and i just remember when it was read aloud like the mom, you know, came over and just the whole room was just completely silent. And she said, like, girls, you know, who wrote this? Like, which one of you wrote this? And I just thought, well, I can tell that, you know, this room is really just dead silent. Like, there's no way I can admit to this right now. So no one said anything and, you know, nothing ever came of it. But I just... um. I'm only telling that as an example of when you have a culture that is so wrapped up in, you know, truth and testimony and, you know, God's love and, you know, like confess your sins and all this type of thing. And yet you don't allow for your own, you know, members of the community essentially to, be anything but good men godly men holy men then these things can happen you know i mean what a perfect way to hide secrets to just shame and shame and shame the children that that you're doing this to you know
1: and blame it on satan
0: yeah it's all the devil you know and that made me feel that i was the devil's too you know it's like well, I mean, I can't stand in the light of God, that the God that you're talking about, if, if you have passed this on to me somehow, you know? So I just struggled with that a lot in my life. Something else that happened within my family um, was an uncle that I have. This didn't happen till I was a little bit of an older kid but there was a lot more of a like soft and kind of I guess seductive approach that he used but the strange thing about that as well is that he too was this like really charismatic like charming you know man of God essentially and every time we would like read together which is something that I loved to do as a kid. He would, you know, do something and um and that culminated later in like more intensive, you know, abuse just because I was really set up for it. But I remember my mom um walking in, you know, on things and kind of having this really weird look on her face and um later just like over and over, like, grilling me about it, you know, and yet, as far as I know, never talked to him once about it. And I only say that just because I want to be very clear that that these things can be in plain sight and, in fact, completely seen, and yet sometimes are still just unchecked just not protected you know
1: how does this trauma continue to impact your life
0: so I mean in different ways like I will say that when I'm doing well and when I'm you know when I'm doing the things that I need to do like going to therapy going to yoga like Putting you know kind of compassion and kindness into my life, I I do fairly well. Um, but when I'm not, it's definitely something that haunts me. And I do know that. So, for instance, like last year, I was diagnosed with a condition called vaginismus, which is something that I thought actually about sharing in this context, um, because I was like, you know, I don't, I don't have to share this, but I want to simply because I hope that, you know, if someone else also has that, that's listening, like I don't want that person to feel alone, um, because I very much felt like a freak and very much felt alone. So basically what this is, is a psychological and like biological thing that happens typically um after some kind of sexual abuse which i i had never heard of it before i mean i didn't realize this at all but it's where your body essentially is protecting you from you know anything like penetrating your body which makes a lot of sense because every time that would happen during abuse i i would obviously you know it was quite painful and i would want to somehow get away So, I mean, that, that's like a physical, you know, impact that I experience and there's things that you can do and like healing that can happen, but there were certainly a lot of feelings when I received that. So,
1: is there anything that's been helpful in working with these symptoms?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think for me, at least I think therapy has been very helpful just because there's a lot of like shame and fear around that healing. And for me, I found therapy to be helpful, but then also just the practical things of trying to, you know, treat your body with respect and like really trying to reframe these experiences are important, you know? So I guess it just, I mean, I think it just takes time really. I think it's there because my body wanted to protect me, you know. And I remember thinking as a kid, like, especially after the more like violent things would happen, like if I could just like get out, you know, if I could just like get out of like this room, like get out of this town, get out of this state then I would be fine. I would be okay if I could just like get out. And then I got out and it's like, Oh, you have this like residual thing that's existing because of this experience. But at the same time, you know, I know that it's just another part of healing.
1: Given that there are multiple Incidents of sexualized violation from multiple people over multiple years. And then also this layer of what I would call betrayal trauma around these people being, you know, religious leaders in the community and also attempting to tell your parents and being denied and invalidated. How has this impacted your relationships as an adult?
0: Well, I have no friends. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, (laughs) (laughs) um, I mean, it's a good question. I, in the past have been very isolated. Um, I will say also that I learned very quickly how to be just a very good people pleaser. Like I can really kind of get my shit together very quickly. What I mean is like if I'm having a hard time, I can pretend that I'm not like very, very sort of thoroughly in a way that convinces people around me. So I've had a lot of difficulty within relationships especially I guess as would be expected like you know romantic relationships just because I'm always just waiting for the ceiling to fall you know and with friends like it's difficult because sometimes I think there is like a difficulty in understanding why I will sometimes do the things that I do like maladaptive things I'm thinking specifically of when my best friend from childhood, you know, discovered that I was self-harming, um, and just really did not know what to do with that and was very, you know, upset, understandably so. So I just I, I think I really struggle with like just believing myself to be worthy of of people, to be honest. So I just I often like feel a lot of, you know, kind of still just that that shame and that worthlessness and so i have to really fight to feel like i you know i'm worthy of like people's time and so that that sometimes will keep me quite isolated but i try really hard to push myself to you know hang out make friends and like trust people essentially but i will say that you know, I mean, it's definitely a dark gift. It's not something I would wish on anyone else, but I also have a really good, like, sixth sense for, for folks that are, like, creepy or are potentially abusive, which is, you know, kind of ironic because in the past I've gotten into interpersonal relationships, which are, you know, more violent or more, I don't know, just exploitative and you know so it's like i know what i'm kind of getting myself into but for some reason i am more comfortable in like um chaos really and so i i also have to really be vigilant and work on that as well but yeah i mean there's just a lot of like distrust and a lot of like self-blame i think one of the difficult things about this type of trauma is that it's almost as though i don't i don't really always blame other people as much as i blame myself like it's like well you're the one who's in the most wrong you know like you're the most worthless you're the most shameful so you should just kind of stay inside and like you know that's that so yeah it's it's definitely something that i have to continue to to work on and it's ironic because sometimes people around me will say like, oh, you're like such a sunshine, like, and all of this. And it's, it always just puzzles me because I'm like, that's not how I feel on the inside at all. I mean, I'm grateful that I'm able to practice kindness because it's what I believe in, but it's such a strange dichotomy, you know? Yeah. You're like, bitch, can't you see this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's really, it's really bizarre. Like, I just, and I think sometimes, like, and, you know, please, you know, hear me. I'm not glamorizing this at all, but I think really that is a lot of what the function of self harm for me was in my life because. I would often write words on my body instead of just like cutting my arms or legs. Like, so I would write like, you know, fuck you or like slut or bad or worthless or, you know, or whore or like things like this. And it was because like all of that stuff was just inside of me, you know, like that's the way I felt inside. So I was almost trying to give it some kind of, Space, I guess, or some kind of reality, because I was so afraid of anyone finding out that I would just really just work so hard at pretending like that I was, you know, this kind of, you know, bubbly, I mean, pastor's daughter essentially, you know, it's like I was this, I was what everyone believed me to be, when in reality, like I just. I felt like a ghost in my own life.
1: Is there one thing that you would say was most useful in your healing?
0: Yes, so for me there was there was definitely um one thing that was most helpful, and that was the the arts really um art music, poetry like that stuff really got me through. When I was, I think around probably like 15, I was at this Barnes and Noble with my family. Just, you know, we were just hanging out and I went into the comic book section and I found this comic. It was like, you know, one that I had never read before by a favorite comic book author. So I was reading it just in the Barnes and Noble. And it's funny because this isn't a major plot point in the comic at all. But there's this one page where the character goes to this, like, I guess, house party and meets this girl. And the whole book is about basically kind of rediscovering, like, the value of life um, because the main character is very, like, suicidal and, you know, runs into all these kind of magical people. And they, you know, they convince him that life is worth living, essentially. So it's kind of trite, but, you know, whatever. But there's this one page where he meets this character and she says to him, you know, do you mean these things that you're saying about how worthless life is? And he says, yeah, you know, it's like shitty. I don't want to be here anymore. And she tells this story. Like I said, this is just like one page. It's like not even a major part of the story, but she tells this story about how she has a friend that was sexually abused as a child and ended up in the hospital for, you know, attempting suicide. And then when she woke up was somehow grateful to still be alive. And it's clear when you're reading the comic that she's talking about herself. And at the very end of the page, he says to her, so like, what happened to your friend? And she says, well, I mean, she went out to the big city and she, like, rediscovered her life. Like, doesn't everyone do that? Who has that kind of background, you know? And I remember, like, reading that in that aisle of, you know, Barnes and & Noble. And and I just thought, like, that's what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to leave. And, I like, I didn't know, like you know, where I was going to go. I didn't know what city I thought I was going to move to, but I thought that's like, this is my way out. And so for me, like things like that were extremely powerful and extremely helpful because truly that was the first time, I think really in my whole life that I'd ever seen someone who was in any type of literature or anything that was reflecting exactly what I was experiencing. And it was extremely powerful and like very, very moving. And I thought it was almost like giving me like a map of like, hey, this is like what you can do. Like you don't have to die. And so that was really important to me because there is this part of me that is more defiant i guess where i do say like fuck you like i'm i'm not gonna die i'm not gonna die by my own hand because of things that you all did like i'm gonna move i'm gonna get out and i'm gonna you know flight response my way (laughs) into a different life and that's what i did
1: beautiful what's the name of the comic book
0: so it's called Death and the High Cost of Living, and it's by Neil Gaiman.
1: Oh, sweet. I love Neil Gaiman.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a good one.
1: Is it part of the death series?
0: Yeah, it is. It is. This one is um, it was like this collection that they had made into, I guess, an anniversary special, and that's why they were all together in one. But I'd never read this particular story before, and so I feel like it was almost like you know, kind of serendipitous that I was meant to read it at that moment, you know.
1: What would you like listeners to take away from this episode?
0: I mean, I think that the most important thing that I want for people to know is that it's okay if you felt as though you had to say yes to things or go along with things that you were completely not okay with because i i also experienced that i carried so much shame for so long and still to some extent do carry like some shame around just the idea of saying yes and the idea of being compliant and being obedient and going along with things Because I was really terrified and I felt like, well, if I'm saying yes to things and it's this bad, what on earth is going to happen if I say no? And so I felt like potentially things could get a lot worse if I did say no. So I... I just want to help shed some light on the, the idea that that's not your shame to carry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm really glad that you said that. Thank you. So Hannah, given the name of the podcast, are you broken?
0: Um, I used to think so. Um, but no, I don't think I'm broken. I definitely went through a time last year after my diagnosis where I very much believed myself to be broken and my body to be broken, but I'm glad to say now that I I no longer feel that. Yeah, I'm not not broken.
1: Hannah's story was really intense, and I really want to honor her courage and her vulnerability in sharing so many parts of herself and her story. There are a lot of opportunities here to discuss some things we haven't addressed yet on the podcast, and also to revisit some important points. But let's start with sex education. Hannah grew up in a small town, And didn't receive any type of sex education. Now, sex education doesn't just mean the mechanics of having sex, conception, reproduction, pregnancy prevention, etc. Sex education also includes teaching our kids the proper names of their body parts, teaching them healthy boundaries that it's okay to say no to touch that they don't want, to modeling healthy relationships to teach them the difference between good touch and bad touch. These things are all important parts of sex education. And I was surprised to find that there's very little research on how sex education can prevent child sexual abuse. It makes sense, right, that it would prevent it, but there's very little research on it. And being autistic, I like to have my research. So, I did find one study, Three Decades of Research, The Case for Comprehensive Sex Education by Goldfarb and Lieberman in the Journal of Adolescent Health from just a year ago, January 2021, where there is clear, specific evidence that childhood sex education prevents childhood sexual abuse. And that was a major component that was missing. In Hannah's hometown and religious culture, she also names that it was really confusing for her that some of the abuse was labeled as affection, and this is one of the things that's so confusing about childhood sexual abuse is often it's mixed in with affection, gifts, normal family touch. The abuse is mixed in with otherwise healthy, appropriate things, and so, as adults, when we're trying to untangle this, it just feels like a big mess. She talks near the end and reassures other survivors that even if they didn't say no or couldn't say no, it's still not their fault. Even if we acquiesce, it doesn't mean that we consented. And she even gets so vulnerable as to name missing that attention and that affection when the abuse stopped. And, of course, feeling ashamed by that. But it's totally normal, totally natural. As kids, we need attention. We need affection especially when we're not getting it in safe ways. We're going to yearn for it from other adults who are giving it to us, even if it's all entwined with some nasty stuff that makes our toes curl, okay? Kids need attention and affection, and abusers exploit that. Hannah also shares that she feels as if her abuse was written on her, and later abusers could read that or see that. And unfortunately, this is true. We've talked about this before, but it's worth naming again. This is called polyvictimization, and people who are sexually abused once are far more likely to be sexually abused again. No, this isn't our fault. This doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us, that we're inviting it, that we're creating our own reality, blah, blah, blah. What this means is that when our boundaries are violated those first times, okay, which isn't our fault, especially when we're not taught how to have healthy boundaries, when our boundaries are violated those first times, it leaves some holes in those boundaries, right? There's something missing for us. And perpetrators can sense that. One of the things perpetrators do is they poke and prod at boundaries to see if there are any holes to see where they can get in. So if we've already been abused and we're missing some boundaries, some perpetrators are going to sniff that out. And it's not your fault. It's a devastating truth but it's not your fault. It's normal, and it's called polyvictimization. Hannah's story also has some great examples of what not to say if someone discloses to you, okay? Don't make threats. Her mom threatened to walk out in the street and get hit by a car. Her dad Threatened that he would kill someone. Now, I get it. I'm a father, okay? Even though I'm non-binary, I still like to be called daddy. And I get it. Like, if someone hurt my kids, I would want to fucking murder them. But, this is not helpful to say to them. Even before anything happens... They might carry that in their mind. My dad would murder anybody who hurt me, and I don't want my dad to go to jail, so I'm going to keep this secret to myself. Okay? So don't make threats. Also, don't ask for details. The friend she shared with on the walk, who just accepted her story, didn't poke, prod, challenge, ask for more, She just accepted Hannah's story and then did something that's really important that I invite y'all to do. She just made a small gesture of affection. What's your favorite candy? And left her some candy. Sweet, connective, low pressure. It really touched my heart to hear that too. Hannah also talks about purity culture and how that weighed upon her to keep her secret, as well as making her feel like shit. Shame is not an effective teaching tool. It might get some of the results you want, but it creates more damage. And comparing people who've had sex before marriage to dirty glasses of water or chewed up pieces of gum is not only ineffective, but it's harmful. And there's something even more important in here that I think we need to acknowledge. That which is taboo has power. Okay? Sex and sexuality were taboo in Hannah's community. They weren't talked about. They were scorned, shamed. Gay kids were ostracized. All of this... They tried to squish and push down and hide and not acknowledge. It was taboo. And it was part of their cultural shadow. Something they tried to deny. And what happened? It popped up in so many church leaders in Hannah's community. And what happened with her grandpa? He was still blaming it on the devil even as he was abusing her. That which is taboo has power, and when we try to hide it from ourselves, it's going to burst forth unbidden while we're scrambling to keep it hidden. Now you might say, well, Poppy, pedophilia is taboo. What about that? Not suggesting that we need to act on these things okay, but even pedophiles, okay, even people who are attracted to children, if there was a little bit less taboo around it, and I'm not saying it's okay, but if there was a little less taboo around it and they could seek help without being shamed, ostracized, and villainized, perhaps we would have less pedophiles. Another thing Hannah vulnerably shares about is her diagnosis of vaginismus as a result of her sexual trauma. Now, there is statistically significant correlation between vaginismus and a sexual trauma history. It's quite common, and vaginismus is actually one of the most commonly reported sexual dysfunctions, as they call it, something that Feels like it ain't working right, and you go to the doctor. Okay, so I'm really glad that she shared about this as well, so that we can normalize it, talk about it a little bit on the podcast, and hopefully let more people know that it's common and you can get support with it. And she talks about some of the things that have been really helpful in navigating it. And finally, she also shares vulnerably about self-harm. There's huge correlation between self-harm and sexual trauma, okay? Also very normal, very common. Self-harm is a coping skill. Clients have done it in order to feel something when they're so dissociated they can't feel anything. Clients have done it to keep feelings under wraps so that they can feel something stronger and specific that they can focus on instead of all the murky emotional trauma under the surface? And Hannah describes writing words on herself, and I would frame that as trying to process these messages she's given about herself, and to try to keep this poor abused little girl inside of herself buried down deep by calling her these shameful things. So self-harm is a coping skill, okay? It's a difficult and painful one. It's literally physically harmful. And I would love for folks to be able to develop coping skills that are less dangerous medically and that, frankly, are less hateful towards themselves. But I get it. I've been there and it's important to normalize self-harm as an outgrowth of sexual trauma, first we need to embrace it and accept it before we can ever look at if it's possible to change. Okay, I think I've ranted long enough. I got fired up on this one. Thanks for bearing with me. If you've gained something from listening to this podcast, if it's been enlightening, if it's been inspiring, if it's been shocking and you want to support the process, you can become a patron for five bucks a month at patreon.com slash I'll put the link in the episode description. And with that, you get episode outtakes, emails that listeners have sent me and consented for me to share, and extras like that. But even if you're just out there listening, thanks for your silent support. Take good care of yourself. See you next time. Thank you for listening. It is not only through the telling of the story, but through listening and believing that we can work together to prevent more sexual violence in our communities. This podcast was made possible by the Agency of Change. In the immortal words of Octavia Butler, All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. Papillon DeBoer is a licensed clinical mental health counselor at agencyofchange.net. Am I Broken? Survivor Stories was recorded, engineered, produced, and scored by Papillon DeBoer. Please share this podcast with others and help end the epidemic of sexual violence.